Amazon workers in Staten Island made history by forming the first labor union in the United States at the corporate giant. Meanwhile, support for unionization increased as Amazon workers participated in a revote at a facility in Bessemer, Alabama, with the final outcome still too close to call. The surge of labor militancy is continuing and taking on bigger and bigger opponents. What comes next? We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. We are excited to have Professor Richard Wolf join us for our regular weekly segment where we talk about the biggest stories related to the economy, the state of the working class, and the crimes of big business. I'm your host, Brian Becker. The Socialist Program brings you content three days a week, thanks to the support of our patrons at patreon.com forward slash the Socialist Program. We appreciate all of your support and encourage you to become a patron today if you enjoy listening to this show. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System, When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. There's also a new hard copy edition of Professor Wolff's book called Understanding Marxism. It's been released recently. It features a new lengthy introduction, strengthening the case for why Marxism is worth understanding. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolff.com. Professor Wolf, welcome back. Thank you. Glad to be here. You know, the, the world is filled with so many giant news stories. Of course, the war in Ukraine being first and foremost amongst them. But what's underreported in the U.S. mainstream, that is corporate-owned media, is the wave of labor militancy and labor organizing among the unorganized, and that would be the vast number of workers in the private sector and the majority also in the public sector. But the win for the Amazon labor union on Staten Island in New York City was truly a David and Goliath battle. And no one expected it. The company did not expect it. The media did not expect it. Most of the unions did not expect it either. This was a union that was formed by Chris Smalls, who had been fired earlier for union organizing at that facility on Staten Island. It's not, at this point at least, connected to any of the major, more well-resourced unions. It was, in fact, a grassroots uprising of the workers at Amazon using a lot of community support. Anyway, Professor Wolf, when you think about unionization, it's the elementary form or certainly one of the basic forms of class organization. As capitalism formed, workers were recruited to go into large-scale enterprises, into factories. Today, it's factories and large-scale offices or warehouses one of the most basic elements is that the workers combine as a class 
to demand that which they need, which of course is always going to be higher wages and better benefits. The bosses, the capitalists always try to keep that number, meaning the number in terms of wage, the wage level at the lowest possible, because of course that maximizes their profits. Anyway, that's part of the irreconcilable struggle between classes that Karl Marx talked about and the workers, even if they, once they get a job, might not be thinking union, union, union. Ultimately, they're compelled to think about unions and the bosses, the capitalists, have made a huge industry in the United States, a sophisticated industry to crush unions. Anyway, let's just talk about the significance of this grassroots uprising on Staten Island. Okay. As usual, the historical framework is a very helpful guide to understanding the importance, and I could not agree with you more, of this milestone, this organization of the first union inside Amazon, the largest employer in this country. Very, very important. So here's the history. The last time we've seen anything like this level of labor militancy and it coming out of a period of time when labor wasn't so militant was the great upsurge of the 1930s. And remember their similarities. The Great Depression hit in October of 1929, but it took several years before the suffering, the pain, the loss settled into the minds of the American working class to the point where they realized they had to step up, mobilize, organize in order not to be really crushed by what was going on. But when they did, oh boy, did they move. In a matter of a very few years, two, three, four years, millions of American workers who had never been in a union before, whose parents had never been in a union, decided that they needed unions really bad. And I don't want to take away from the courageous union organizers, the members of the two socialist parties, the communist party in those days who worked together to organize the unions. But without the upsurge from below, exactly the way you saw in the Staten Island Amazon warehouse, without that upsurge from below, the most genius organizer cannot carry the day. So what happened in the 30s was an enormous explosion of the power of the working class, which won for itself, that is for the vast majority of Americans, absolutely stunning achievements. I mean, Americans still don't get it. We had the first minimum wage because of the upsurge of militancy. We had the social security system because of the upsurge of labor militancy. We had the federal unemployment compensation system. And all of those are still in effect now, you know, almost a century later. And we also had, although we haven't repeated that, an enormous program of government employment 
Millions and millions of Americans were hired by the federal government, thereby taking them out of the situation of unemployment, giving them a job, giving them the self-esteem that comes with it, giving them the income so they could maintain their mortgage payments, pay their rents, avoid the evictions, etc., etc. But the capitalist class, the employer, were, just like you said, Brian, stunned. They hadn't expected this. They thought they had squashed labor militancy back in the days at the end of the 19th century with the big strikes and struggles at that time. Well, they were wrong. And they understood that not only had they provoked their workers into tremendous militancy, but it was so big and it was so powerful that the president of the United States, Franklin Roosevelt, had to meet with these workers and provide them with things like social security, minimum wage, and so on, because he would have faced a revolution had he not done so. But now let's bring it to the present. When World War II was over, when Franklin Roosevelt had died in 1945, the business community understood very clearly what they had to do. They had to undo all that had happened in the 1930s that went by the name the New Deal. And that's what we've had in the last 70 years, a systematic rollback. Social Security isn't providing the kind of support that was intended. The minimum wage has become a joke. $7.25 an hour is what it is today, and it was last raised in 2009. Even though every year since then prices have gone up, the minimum wage hasn't. You have eviscerated these programs. You've never even talked about a federal jobs program, despite the crashes of 2008, 2020, 21. We don't even think about it. Labor has been crushed. The union movement, which represented a third of American workers, now represents barely a tenth of American workers and an even smaller percentage in the private sector, which is a dominant part of our economy. But you know, history is a funny game. History gave the the business community, a whole lot of clever ideas, a big industry developed, as you said, to squash the labor unions as they emerged from their victorious period in the 1930s and early 40s. But now the capitalists have done it again because of what Marx, among others, understood so well that the class struggle is baked in to capitalism, that even if it's not staring you in the face, it's two millimeters below the surface. So here we are, having squeezed the working class over the last 30, 40 years, having taken advantage of the decline of the labor movement in order to really stick it to working people while the rich got ever richer, even into the stratosphere of the billionaires. They got complacent, those businesses. They got lazy. They took their victory for granted. They imagined they couldn't or wouldn't provoke workers. And if they did, the workers would have been so crushed by the last 60 years of labor union decline that they couldn't or wouldn't do anything. And they were wrong. 
as they have been wrong in the past because they don't understand the very things they do to jack up their profits, squeeze the working class eventually into what we saw at the Amazon warehouse on Staten Island over the last few months, culminating in their victory. And I think the lesson we should take are two. Number one, when the workers begin to move, understand their situation, grasp the need to collectively get together because they are an unstoppable majority of the people. This is not a country of employers. This is a country of employees. That's who the majority have been and are. And if you mobilize and organize them, self-conscious workers aware of what their situation is, and Chris Smalls is an excellent example of all of this, you have a virtually unstoppable force. They can do what no one thought they could do. Organize Amazon. Organize, and I'm going to come to another example in a moment. But I don't want anyone to make the same mistake. The unions cannot let up. They cannot get complacent. They cannot imagine that no one is noticing. The capitalist class notices. And they're going to fight very hard. Yeah, to form a union is an amazing struggle, and you won that. But now the struggle just moves to another level. The union is going to have to bargain and negotiate with Amazon. And there are just as many pitfalls in that process as there were in organizing the union in the first place. And as a sign of the capitalists gearing up for what is going to be, if I dare say so, the mother of all class struggles looming in this country. Here's news from Tuesday morning of this week. Starbucks Corporation, one of the largest growth corporations of recent years. Everybody knows who they are. They are another employer of huge numbers of people whom they systematically underpay and overwork, just like Amazon. And they have also suffered surprising labor militancy that has organized Starbucks stores after decades when unions either couldn't or wouldn't do that. So they're scared. And so Tuesday morning of this week, Starbucks announced a change in their policy. And this is important for folks to understand it didn't get anywhere near the attention that it ought to have, which is why I'm bringing it up. They announced they are not going to use millions and millions of dollars of profits they've earned in the future to do what they did in the past. And in particular, what they did in the past that they're not going to do anymore is buy back their own shares of stock. Big corporations love to do that because it pleases shareholders. If the company buys its own stock in the market, it drives up the price of the stock. And that means shareholders, other than the company who own those shares, will enjoy the higher prices of those shares. Equally important in many companies, 
the payment of the top executives is made conditional on the price of the shares. This is supposed to be an incentive for the corporate leaders to work harder to make the shares go up because it'll enhance their own pay. Of course, it's those same people whose pay goes up when the prices go up who have the power to use profits to raise the prices which raise their incomes, the cozy situation of capitalists. So it is very significant that the leaders of Starbucks aren't going to do that. And then they told us what they're going to do with those profits that they're not spending on stock buybacks in the future. You know what they're going to do? I'm going to use their language and then I'm going to translate for you. We're going to invest in our labor force. Now, I'm going to translate that. We're going to use the money to fight these unions. We're going to, if we have to, give workers a little bit more money in order to bribe them, we hope, away from unionization, away from loyalty to the union. We hope they won't understand that the only reason we're doing it is because they have unions and that the unions are strong. We're going to fight in every way we can, and we're mobilizing the profits to do it. And I don't want anyone to miss the irony. The very workers whose labor produces the profits will now watch those profits they produced used by the employer to fight their efforts to get a union, to get decent wages, and to get decent jobs. The irony of this and what it tells you about how capitalism works should be lost on no one. Richard, the, the labor movement in the United States has faced formidable challenges during the period that you talked about, and especially in the last four decades. Some of the challenges are structural in the way work is organized, the way U.S. capitalism is organized, the process of globalization where huge amounts of manufacturing, for instance, was able to be sent offshore either to China or to Mexico or to Taiwan or to parts of Eastern Europe following the collapse of the socialist bloc countries in 1988 to 1991. There's all kinds of problems that a labor movement and a labor union has to confront. If if in the old days you had thousands of workers under one roof, organizing workers was still hard, but you know they were all concentrated together. When workers are dispersed, when they're not in urban areas, when Amazon warehouses are, when you go around the country, you see they're always not right in the middle of the city for the most part. They're somewhere else where it's hard to get to. Lots of problems. Then there's the other problem where if wages, generally speaking, are in decline, or if there's a huge army, the reserve army of the unemployed, ready to take any job that might come available, like say at the beginning of a recession or a depression, that also makes it hard to have workers sort of take the risk of organizing against the boss because some other unemployed worker is ready to take your place. I mean, there's just such a range of challenges. But I want to go back to where you started, where the last 
massive upsurge of labor took place in the United States, and that was during the Great Depression. Now, the stock market crashed in October 1929. By 1930, there was the beginning of mass unemployment, 31, massive unemployment. There were labor and pro-worker and socialist forms of organization taking place during that time. The unemployed councils formed. There were other associations where militant efforts were made to help provide basic services so workers could literally live and not starve to death. But then the labor movement really starts to take off in 1933 and especially in 1934. 1934, there's a general strike in Minneapolis, Minnesota, Toledo, Ohio, in San Francisco, three general strikes in one year, in 1934. But it was at that time that there was the beginning of, a, of an economic pickup. The economy was starting to be less depressed, and thus the competition between workers became somewhat mitigated because maybe you could get another job if you lost your job. I want to place that question before you because in the last two years, there's all this talk about the great resignation, the fact that there's a labor shortage, wages have been moved up, workers who are actually in the labor force kind of feel a little bit like if I lose this job, maybe I can get a job somewhere else, unlike at the worst part of the depression. And thus the material conditions or the objective conditions are such that workers have a little bit more leeway than they do during the leanest time. How much of a factor is that, do you think, in the current round of success in labor organizing like at Amazon? Well, I guess my answer, in the interest of not taking too much time, is I think that's a factor. It belongs in the conversation. But I think it takes second place. I think it cannot compete with the long, slow slog of the American working class over the last 40 years. This relentless taking away of the quality of the job, of the benefits of the job, the converting of your pension from a defined benefit, as it's called, to a defined contribution, the erosion of the minimum wage, the conversion of more and more jobs so that they are insecure. You don't know how many hours per week and for how many weeks you will work. All of these erosions at the same time that the top 10% of the population becomes richer and richer, the middle hollows out, the American dream becomes unaffordable to the majority of people. I think that has the long-term effect of slowly teaching Americans that they don't live in a charmed place, that the exceptionalism they thought attached to American capitalism to make it different from the European and other, all of that is a mirage, that when it comes down to it, the companies here will try to savage their workers and squeeze every last nickel out of them with technology, with exporting jobs to where labor is cheaper, etc. All of that relentlessness, that has the power finally to make people move, at which point 
they don't even care anymore. I think most of the people, and there is lots of polling to show this, most of the people who are quitting their jobs these days, they're not quitting because they have a better one lined up. And they're not even quitting because they think they might find one. They're quitting because they've had it. That's how they talk. I'm not going to be treated this way. And they say things like, over the last two years during COVID, I was told that workers like me are essential, that we're the front line. We keep the system going when it is subject to a public health disaster. We're valuable. And then we're treated like this, paid like this, abused like this. It's too much. The system has overreached itself. It can't do for the mass of people what it led the mass of people to expect in this country. And it really has no one to blame, even though it will try to, but itself. It did that. It gave people the hope. It gave people the promise of a middle-class life of well-toned jobs and incomes and college education for their children. And it's taking them away bit by bit, here and there, and the people now figured it out, and they're quitting out of rage, and they're discovering, by the way, that if you quit and you didn't get another job because you have to, you're going to find pretty much the same conditions where you go to those that you left, which means quitting isn't a solution. Forming a union and fighting to change the condition is your only real hope. And I think you're seeing the results of that. And I don't think it's going to stop real soon. And I don't think Starbucks has a clue what to do. And simply throwing more money at it, which is their plan, it'll make life harder for workers, no doubt. But I don't think they know what they're up against and they can't face their own responsibility for what they're up against. Very important words, Richard. I want you to, in our last question, to talk about how labor organizing also dovetails with the renewed interest in socialism. I mean, we're the socialist program. That's how we branded this show. We try to raise and re-raise and lift up the idea that there is an alternative way that society can be organized, a different way that work can be organized a different way for governance, and that it's based on a socialist perspective. Now, if we had done this show 15 years ago, it would be quite marginal. But right now, unlike 15 years ago, where there was lots of mass movements, there was an anti-war movement, an immigrant rights movement, an environmental movement, but people were basically not connecting the dots and saying, look, the problems with war, the problems with immigration, the problems with the environment are really the problems of capitalism. But today, people really are doing that, especially young people. And when you see like who's working at Amazon, who's working at Amazon in Staten Island and also in Alabama or in any of these warehouses, I was just in Southern Florida, giant, giant Amazon warehouses in different places and different locations in Southern Florida, the people working there are basically young people. I mean, when you're a picker, that's what they're called at an Amazon warehouse, you get into work, you log in, you check in, you clock in, and then you're given a little device, a little computer, and it tells you where to go all over this warehouse to pick up 
a tube of toothpaste or some lights or some garments, and then you're going to run those items back to a, a center, a staffing desk where other people are going to pack the goods, and then they're going to be taken to another part of the warehouse where they're going to be shipped. These are young people, basically. I mean, they a picker picks up 1,200 pieces of merchandise per shift, 1,200 pieces in eight hours. You have to be pretty young just to sustain that pace. And now you have young people, young workers organizing. The ideas of socialism no longer such a taboo. It feels to me, and I really believe this firmly, that we're entering or have entered a new period where there will be both a revived interest in labor organizing and a revived interest in socialism. And this will revive what was at one time a very, very robust socialist movement in the United States until that movement was essentially canceled after World War II during the middle of the witch hunt. Anyway, we'll let you have the final word on this. Again, I will use history as an example. This is the way it happens. You know, for a long time in slavery, the people who were horrified by it spent their time and their energy and their passion to demand better treatment of the slaves. You know, more clothing, better food, better shelter. But inevitably, there were the people who said, wait a minute, even if we get that, we only get it because the master is persuaded to give it and the master will figure out when, where, and how he takes it back. We can't be satisfied with demanding improvements. We've got to change the system. There should be no master who owns us and can take and give what other human beings need to live. The system has to be changed. Same thing happened with serfs and feudal lords. And guess what? You're right. It's happening again now. Are there people who want better jobs, better incomes, better standards of living for working people? Of course, and well, they should, and more power to them. But there are always going to be people, lots of them, who figure out what the employer may be forced to give us now. He will work overtime to take away whenever he can. That's why I told the story about Starbucks today. Watch them. They're already doing it. What we need is a change of system so nobody is in a position to hold the blackmail over another human being. I'll take your job. I'll take your income. I'll throw you and your family into the street. What kind of a society permits this to be done, especially when you don't need it because you could feed and clothe and shelter everybody? These questions of system are built in, baked in to what we're watching. So I agree with you. We're in for a very bumpy ride. The so-called class struggle that Karl Marx talked about, well, it's right here, right now. Richard Wolff is the co-founder of the organization Democracy at Work. He's the author of many books, the latest being The Sickness is the System When Capitalism Fails to Save Us from Pandemics or Itself. There's a new hard copy edition of Professor Wolf's book, Understanding Marxism. It's been released recently. It features a new lengthy introduction, which strengthens the case for why Marxism is worth understanding. You can check out all of his work at rdwolf.com. That's rdwolf.com. You're listening to The Socialist Program. We'll be back tomorrow. 
You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.